Book of the Month. Follow the link to buy your copy. During the months of July and August, we'll be looking at John Knox, Scotland's reformer. If you'd like to learn more about John Knox, and there is a lot to learn, there's plenty of resources online. And if you prefer books, a good starting point is an excellent little primer, John Knox, Fearless Faith, by Stephen Lawson. It's just 100 pages, and it's packed with fast-moving information about Knox. And there's a link to buy the book on www.semper-reformata.com throughout July and August. Just follow the link in the episode notes. The book costs just £5.49. A small part of that goes to support this podcast. The Book of the Month, John Knox, Fearless Faith, by Stephen Lawson. Welcome to the Semper Reformatic Podcast, spreading the word and contending for the faith. cast your mind back a few weeks now. When we last looked at Acts, we had found Paul alone and discouraged in a prison cell. And we knew he was alone and discouraged because he took encouragement from the Lord's presence. And in verse 11 of that same chapter, we read the night following the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul. There you are. The Lord's presence cheers us. And it commissions us. For he had, Paul had, more work to do. For as thou hast testified of me in Jerusalem, so must thy bear witness also at Rome. And that's where we left Paul, alone in his prison cell, with no man to help him except Christ. And we marveled at the fact that when all have forsaken me, I have the Lord who is always with me and who never forsakes me. But Paul's still under arrest. He's still technically innocent, of course. He's on remand. He's in the castle. He's under guard. And he's being fed there. His friends are bringing food in. The Romans don't feed their prisoners. Of course they don't. Why would they do that? Sure, just let them die. It'd be cheaper than bringing them to court. So they allowed people to bring in food for individual prisoners. Maybe that's where Paul's nephew was coming into it. He was bringing food into the prison. But right now he's safe. He's being fed. He's been sheltered from the Jews. And he certainly seems to have some privileges as a Roman citizen. So I want to look at just two things this evening. And that doesn't mean it's going to be any shorter, I'm afraid. I want you to see the plot that there is against Paul. And we're going to see the role played by an unnamed young man who simply comes in and out of the biblical record and we don't know who he is. So the plot against Paul is found in verse 12. And when it was day, certain of the Jews banded together and bound themselves under a curse, saying they would neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. Plot. 
Among the Jews of that day, there were many, many zealots, weren't there? There were fanatics who would kill for the Jewish cause, for the Jewish religion, and for the Jewish aim of a national restoration and the overthrow of Roman rule and Jewish freedom. Jewish versions of the Republican zealots that we had here in the 70s and 90s. Men who were so fanatical about their cause, their mistaken cause, that they would starve themselves to death in a filthy prison cell. Not that it was filthy until they went into it, of course. And those Jewish fanatics became known as the knife men for their guerrilla tactics. They would wait until festivals came and they would move into the crowds with knives hidden in their garments and they would mingle and mix with the crowd until they would find someone who was from another race, uh, a Gentile or a Roman perhaps, and they would hope that they could get close enough to furtively ram a knife into some Roman soldier or some Roman citizen or someone they considered to be a collaborator. And there may even have been one of those converted and saved among the disciples of Jesus. Simon, called Salotes, would have been a zealot. And here's a measure of their fanaticism. For we're told in verse 12 that they bound themselves under a curse, saying that they would neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. It's a great curse. If you look at verse 14, they even admit that themselves. When they came to the chief priests and elders, they said, we have bound ourselves under a great curse. A great curse. Certainly, a curse along the lines of that found in 1 Samuel 14, where Saul said, God do so and more also, for you shall surely die, Jonathan. Curse. Very serious oath. And it involved a period of fasting. They would neither eat nor drink until they had did that awful deed that they had promised in their curse that they would do. In fact, if you think about the curse, um, just how dreadful it was, is described in the word that's used for it. The word for vow or curse here in the Greek is the word anathematizo. Tripped over my own word there. Anathematizo. It's the same word that Paul himself used when he wrote to the Galatians about people who preach a false gospel. In Galatians chapter 2 and verse 8 and 9, Paul says, Even though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which, ye have, that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. The word is amathematizo, anathematized. Literally rendered, to be honest, it, it is literally rendered, let him go to hell. It's the seriousness of it. 
The Amplified Bible puts it like this, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach unto you a gospel contrary to that which we originally preached to you, let him be condemned to destruction. This is a serious curse. This is a very serious curse indeed. And there's dreadful consequences. The Talmud would state that the punishment for breaking this vow is actually the death of one's children. That's an indication of just how fanatical these people were and how determined they were to carry out that great curse, that oath that they had placed upon themselves. So we're thinking about the plot against Paul. And we're thinking about the curse. And we're thinking about the cabal. And we're thinking about the collusion. But before I move away from this curse, I just want one thought to rest in your heart and your mind. And I want you to remember that that great curse that the Jews placed themselves under is not dissimilar to the curse that we are all under. We're all under a curse. A curse that's far greater than the curse that the Jews of those days had. We have a curse hanging over us, a self-inflicted curse. We bear in our bodies and in our souls the curse of Adam, the curse of sin, the curse of guilt, the curse of condemnation. Like those Jews, our curse is self-inflicted. We have called it down upon our own heads by our rebellion, by our willful rejection of God's law. We fall short of God's law, fall short of his standards and his requirements. We miss the mark. We break the law. I want you to turn with me for a moment to Galatians chapter 3 and verse 10. Um, This is an important verse, and that's why I want you to look at it in your Bible. And um, so Galatians chapter 3 and verse 10. And if you haven't already done it, you should underline this in your Bible. For as many as are of the works of the law, that's us, in our unsealed state. That's mankind. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. We have this great curse hanging over us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. We are lawbreakers. And because we have broken God's law deliberately and willfully... That self-inflicted curse is upon our heads. It's a weighty curse. It's a dreadful curse. This curse of sin is our anathema. It is an even more awful curse than the curse that the Jews wrecked upon themselves. And it is a curse that will bind us to a lost and an unending eternity in everlasting destruction in hell forever and ever. If ever that Greek word was applicable to those men and acts, it is so to the ungodly today. 
I want you to fully appreciate the horror of this self-inflicted curse. Think of how Jesus describes the consequences of this curse. In Mark chapter 9 and verse 44, when he describes to his disciples the awfulness of a lost eternity, a place where the worm dieth not and the fire is never quenched. It is a self-inflicted curse that we have called down upon ourselves. It is a weighty and dreadful curse that will bind us into a lost eternity. And it's an inescapable curse. See, there's one thing about these Jews and their curse. Binding and horrendous as it was. They had an escape clause. They had it written into it. If it became impossible to keep the vow under the terms of the Talmudic law, if it became impossible to keep the vow, the weight of their curse could be lifted off them. But you see, for the curse of sin and the curse of the law, there is no escape clause. Someone has to take the burden of the curse. Someone has to pay the debt for the broken law. We are unable to pay and we are doomed because the curse rests upon us. Now you can see our plight, can't you? By our natural birth, this awful curse is hanging over us by a thread. A curse that will bring us to the very pit of hell itself. But you see, God's justice and his terrible wrath against the sinfulness of mankind is tempered by his love and his mercy. You see, I hope I've tried to get you to grasp the dreadfulness of this curse and the consequence of this curse. Because only when we understand the nature of the curse are we able to fully appreciate or at least attempt to more fully appreciate what Jesus did for us when he died on the cross. Here's what he did. He took my curse upon himself. The anathema, the weight of our awful punishment, my eternal hell, your eternal hell. He took it out of love for you and me and he bore it. My punishment led on him. The Heidelberg Catechism in question 39 asks, does it have a special meaning that Christ was crucified and did not die in a different way? And the answer is yes. Thereby I am assured that he took upon himself the curse which lay on me. For a crucified one was cursed by God. 
Let's go back to Galatians chapter 3. Let's read verse 10. For as many as are of the works of the law, that's me, that's you, are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is every one that continueth not in all the things which are written in the book of the law to do them, lawbreakers. But that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God, it is evident, for the just shall live by faith. And the law is not of faith, but the man that doeth them shall live in them. Christ, verse 13, hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. Seventeenth century Lutheran Paul Gerhardt wrote a lovely poem. Here it is. Extended on a cursed tree. Be smeared with dust and sweat and blood. See there the king of glory see. Sinks and expires. The Son of God. Who, who my Saviour this hath done? Who could thy sacred body wound? No guilt thy spotless heart hath known. No guile hath in thy lips been found. I, I alone have done the deed. Tis I thy sacred flesh have torn. My sins have caused thee, Lord, to bleed, pointed the nail, and fixed the thorn. The burden for me too great to sustain, on thee, my Lord, was led. To heal me, thy hast borne my pain. To bless me, thy a curse was made. We're cursed under the law. Thanks be to God tonight, Christ took my curse. And I don't go to hell. And I don't suffer the punishment for my sins. But I'm his, bought with a price, forever and ever. The curse. The cabal... There was a considerable amount of men here. Forty of them or more. Verse 13. There were more than forty which had made this conspiracy. A considerable number of men who were so full of hatred for Paul and the gospel message of saving grace that they would bind themselves in this way. Forty to one. The odds are not good in Paul's favour. And so we have collusion. Now we know what that is, don't we? They needed to get Paul out of the castle before they could murder him. 
And they needed to fulfill their vow, and they needed to get themselves a decent meal again. And that's where the problem lay, because Paul's in Roman custody, surrounded by the soldiers of the most ruthless army in the world of that time, every one of them a gladiator, sworn to do his duty to the death. But these Jews have a cunning plan. They're going to go to the leaders of the Sanhedrin, presumably to the chief priest and those who hate Paul the very most, and that would be the Sadducees, and they're going to involve them in the plot. All the priests have to do is to ask the Romans to bring Paul back to the council. See, with a few more wee things we need to find out. One or two wee points that we just want clarification on. You know, there may have been a wee bit of under misunderstanding in that last interview that we had with Paul. And maybe that's what caused the row. So just bring him back and we'll ask him a couple of more wee questions. And then when the Romans have brought Paul into the council to be gently questioned... The knife men will do their work. Verse 14. They came to the chief priests and elders and said, We have bound ourselves under a great curse, that we will eat nothing until we have slain Paul. Now therefore ye with the council signify to the chief captain that he bring him down unto you tomorrow as though you would inquire something more perfectly concerning him. And we, or ever he come near, are ready to kill him. And that's where the plot changes. Way back in the 70s, um, I used to guard a judge who was prosecuting the so-called supergrass trials. And, uh, and one of rather not a judge but a, a prosecutor, one of the QCs, and um, he would have been coming in and out at night, and we'd have been checking his vehicle and one thing and another. Used to get a wee bit of insight on what was going on. Supergrasses, the people who turned evidence and hoped that they would get a wee bit of a lighter sentence for it. Of course, the whole thing eventually fell apart. But this brings us to one of the most intriguing passages in the book of Acts, because into the narrative now comes what we might call a supergrass, Paul's nephew, his sister's son, of whom we know absolutely nothing, not even his name. Look at verse 16. And when Paul's sister's son heard of their lying in wait, he went and entered into the castle and told Paul. So we've got an informer here. Paul came, of course, from a wealthy family. They were Roman citizens, and that was a right that was only held by people who have some importance, who can buy their citizenship, or their family can pass that citizenship on. But we also know that when Paul became a believer in Christ, like all other Jews who became believers in Christ, he would have been shunned. He would have been estranged. He'd have been cut off from his family. There'd be no more contact. There'd be no more emotional support or moral support or financial support for a son who betrays the faith. So in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 7, Paul writes this. 
What things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. He'd lost everything when he came to Jesus. But now we learn that he has a nephew. And that nephew is in Jerusalem. And like Paul earlier, presumably he would be in Jerusalem to study. And because he's in Jerusalem studying, presumably he would have been a Pharisee, like his uncle Paul was. And perhaps he had sat in the council, and perhaps he had heard the arguments, and perhaps he'd agreed with what the Pharisees said back in verse 9, whenever they'd said, We find no evil in this man. But if a spirit or an angel hath spoken to him, let us not fight against God. After all, when it came down to issues of resurrection, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were deeply divided. And of course, there's always that saying, isn't there? That blood's thicker than water. Somehow or another, Paul's nephew heard about the plot. He heard that his uncle was going to be the victim of an assassination and his conscience is pricked and he makes his way secretly to the castle and he asked to see his uncle. He entered into the castle and told Paul. Interestingly, Paul in the jail received his nephew and listened to his story and believed what he was Reporting. Look at verse 17. Then Paul called one of the centurions unto him and said, Bring this young man unto the chief captain, for he hath a certain thing to tell him. There's an interesting insight there, isn't there? So we have an informer. We have an also a little bit of insight. It's the access that Paul had to visitors. The relationship he had with the guards and even the commander himself. It's a little snapshot of history revealing how differently a Roman citizen is treated by the Roman state police from a non-citizen. This young man from Paul's family also would be a Roman citizen. Was brought to the commander and look how cordially he is received. He is taken by the hand, verse 19. The chief captain shook hands with him. Isn't that interesting? And he gives him the intelligence. Verse 20. And here's an interesting conversation. The boy said, The Jews have agreed to desire thee that thou wouldst bring down Paul tomorrow into the council as though they would inquire somewhat of him more perfectly. But do not thou yield to them. This is the Roman commander. This is the boy talking to him. For there lie in wait for him of them more than forty men, which have bound themselves with an oath that they will neither eat nor drink till they have killed him, and now they are ready, looking for a promise from thee. He's giving the Roman commander instructions. 
And the commander's listening well to the boy. And even more impressively, the commander takes the boy's advice. The chief commander, verse 22. The chief captain then let the young man depart and charged him, See thou tell no man that thou hast showed these things to me. So we have an informer and we have an insight and we have the intelligence and we have the instruction and it's a snapshot of history. And for us there's an interesting lesson because this is one of these intriguing Bible moments when some anonymous character appears and changes history. Like when King Ahab died. Remember King Ahab, he was the wicked king back in, of Israel, back in the days of Elijah. And he picked this fight with Syria and he roped in Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, and he set that king up for a fall. And the Bible simply records that some anonymous archer simply fired an arrow into the air and the arrow pierced a kink in Ahab's armor and it killed him. 1 Kings 22 verse 34, a certain man drew a bow at a venture and smote the king of Israel. And he died. We'll never know who that man was. But God used him to change history. And so with Paul's unknown nephew, there's a lesson in that for us. We may not be important in the eyes of the world awful lot going on in the world at the minute you may not be known you may not be recognised you may not be a celebrity you may not be a name but believe you me in God's plan every one of us is important and every one of us is part of his eternal covenant our destiny is already written. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 27 tells us that God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the, the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and things which are despised hath God chosen. And yea, and things which are not to bring to naught, things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. Who knows the name of Paul's nephew? Who knows my name or yours? Well, God does. And his purpose will come to pass. And he will use even the weak things to do that. So two simple lessons this evening. The first one is that the great curse that we called upon ourselves through our disobedience to the law has been lifted off us. It has been lifted off us because it was taken by Christ who bore it to the cross and who relieves us of that awful burden and brings us into God's kingdom. And the second is that when we are in that kingdom, God uses us to bring about his sovereign purpose 
even though nobody else might know our names, so that all the glory goes to him. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast, please help to make it better known by opening the podcast app on your phone or mobile device. Then, search for The Semper Reformata Podcast. Subscribe and give it a 5-star rating. See you next time.